0: Hi, and welcome to The Intersect. I'm Eric Tischler. Aft Associates tackles complex challenges around the world, ranging from improving health and education to assessing the impact of environmental changes. For any given problem, we bring multiple perspectives to the table. We thought it would be enlightening and maybe even fun to pair up colleagues from different disciplines so they can share their ideas and perhaps spark new thinking about how we solve these challenges. Today, I'm joined by two of those colleagues, Anne Leffler and Bob Fryett. Ann has two decades of experience working with healthcare safety net service delivery providers in the U.S. Trained in epidemiology and biomedical policy, she's worked with health center leaders in frontier, rural, and urban areas. Bob is a public health and health financing expert with over 30 years of experience working in public health and social policy in low, middle, and high-income countries. That experience spans NGO, government, and multilateral settings. Welcome. Nice to be here. COVID-19 is stressing health systems around the world, so I want to talk about the experience and possible solutions in the U.S. and internationally. And what can you tell us about the U.S.'s response?
1: I think as far as the response, it's, it's really been exacerbated by problems that already have existed in the U.S. healthcare system for decades. Things like fragmentation, um, lack of care coordination, and general um, regional as well as local collaboration that um, our healthcare system has suffered from all along. So it's kind of amplified those problems. And right now we're seeing issues related to getting equipment and supplies like um, PPE. That's
0: personal protective equipment.
1: We're seeing uh, the healthcare system financially in distress because of lost revenue. They can't pay, they can't um, serve patients that they normally would um, under these conditions. They're they're concerned about keeping their staff safe and protected, and and well, and um, not just physically but also emotionally. And they're also struggling with the variety of information that's pervasive across the country, whether it's through social media or emails, email chains that folks are sharing. And there's a lot of misinformation out there.
0: So, Bob, when you hear about the challenges in the U.S., I know that we're working on with other countries on COVID-19. Uh, how are we helping to address some of those challenges elsewhere?
2: Well, well I is one of the big things that have happened in the last few months, which ha- hasn't happened so much in the past, is that a, a phenomenal level of collaboration and sharing of um, technology and information about what works and what, what hasn't. Um, we've all seen what happened in China um, and within weeks, um, the technologies to develop tests was being shared. It was being published. The data was out there. Um, it, they, they stumbled at first, but they initially put on a good response, and the rest of the world has learned from that. So I think that's one of the first big changes: is actually just collaboration about what works and what what doesn't. We're also working with through with U.S. government support, working in in various countries to help bring countries up to scratch, some some countries had their pandemic preparedness plans pretty well developed and prepared, but many were just simply not ready. So even getting the basics ready around how to um, prepare and contain very early outbreaks weren't in place. And so we're, that know-how is being is being shared together with the latest evidence of what of what, of what works.
0: So, Anne, how, how does that reflect what we're seeing in the U.S. in terms of our response? You know, is, is, are we seeing sort of the same trends or are you seeing different trends?
1: I think it's very similar. Um, I think, for example, in New York State, you're seeing um, kind of a deregionalization or localization of the healthcare system where you've got... Um, uh, some communities uh, contributing supplies and equipment to hot hot spots in their states. Um, you're also seeing more collaboration between public and private providers, so that um, there is sort of a shared capacity and and offloading higher demand areas and hospitals where you need it. Mm-hmm. You also see um, nationally different states and governors looking to each other for. Um, interventions and policies that tend to flatten the curve, so they speak, um, so that um, people can learn from each other and, and see what's working in, in areas and, and trying them out in their own places. Um, so more of that collaboration, I think, is happening.
0: And so speaking of flattening the curve, so if we're seeing that collaboration where sort of people are coming together, what are some of the next steps uh, that we can be taking or that that you know governments are taking? to sort of help get things under control more quickly?
1: Well, I think these measures, we're starting to see that they do matter, that that physical distancing is having an impact on um, on the number of new cases that we're seeing. I think where we could do more is having more of a cohesive and consistent strategy across states. Mm-hmm. Because, um, you know, for example, I'm in Colorado and um, we have a lot of physical distancing, mask wearing, all kinds of policies um, in place here in Colorado to keep to keep everyone safe and keep the curve flat. And we're surrounded by states that don't have those policies, but that doesn't mean that people who live in those states aren't coming to Colorado. It just means that um, the policies are different, and so um, where are the risks associated with that when you don't have that level of consistency.
0: Right. And so Bob, obviously, we do a lot of health system strengthening um, internationally. What could the states maybe be doing to help get that more consistent response?
2: Well, there's an, an amazing amount of learning and innovation going on across the world. And one of our roles really is to pick up on that innovation and learning and spread it more widely. Um, and, and it's remarkable what um, you know, when there's a, a crisis, how, what, what can happen. Um, and often it's, it's not easy to detect that when you're in the States or in Geneva. Uh, so you need you need to have links with the field and find out what's going on, how they're coping, get that documented and get that shared. So that's one thing. Um, the other is actually getting the science in place. I mean, getting good data and analysis and research. Um, I mean, there's been a huge call for research um, um, to, to take place in the social sciences and the basic sciences. And the response of that is great. But that knowledge has to be. Um, Synthesized and disseminated, and that's another major role that we're we're finding ourselves taking.
0: Mm, As so, how so? So, what are we doing to help support those efforts?
2: Well, I mean, a lot of it comes to just basic things. So, in some of the um, countries where we're working in, a lot of it is is actually just working with the um, with the the policymakers and the managers, getting some of the basics understood and disseminated, um, using all sorts of media, local medium uh, media. Um, and using local experts and local and local groups to, to disseminate the the, the messages. Um, the other area that we're getting brought into is around procurement um, of, of, of of essential um, supplies, such as tests and such like. And in there, because the technology has been moving so quickly, we have to keep up with the latest technology about what's the best test, the best, uh, and then the best sources, and then and then plug that into national needs. Um, and that's occupying a lot of our time at the moment.
0: Gotcha. And what are you seeing in terms of having to get those resources in in place in the states? Are we making progress?
1: I think one innovative thing that has actually become more important than ever is the nation's primary care safety net, the federally qualified health centers. Um, Right now, they serve about almost 30 million people across the country through 12,000 primary care locations. And we've really seen them step up and offload the um, the hospital burden in, in terms of their surge capacity, and and they're doing that through um, triage and treatment. They're doing tests. I think 75% of health centers are are doing test testing right now. Um, they have pharmacies. They um, are a trusted source of information. And I think down the road they will be an important source of you know, vaccinations, immunization, and also surveillance. They um, have uh, state and regional uh, electronic health records data that could potentially serve as um, surveillance of any further outbreaks as we look down the road.
0: Is that something we can help coordinate, you know, like through dashboards or clearinghouses? Is that, you know, how do do we bring all that together?
1: Yeah, I I definitely think through apps, ability to do data visualization and dashboarding would definitely be something where we could play a role. I also think our capacity with predictive analytics. So even if there isn't a positive COVID-19 test, but there are these other health indicators, um, respiratory issues, things like that, that might flag or predict potential outbreaks in a community. Um, I think um, there are a lot of options where APT could play a role in um, anticipating epidemics uh, or um, second waves, third waves. We've heard um, people talk about those are the types of things that we could do with that data.
0: Yeah, great, and I think, and we even talked about that a little bit on a previous podcast. And that segues into uh, my next question, which is um, we've talked a little bit. There was a learning curve. People are coming together. Um, we're adapting in the response. Um, how can we help countries, the U.S. and others, learn from this for the future? You know, what can we do to help make sure the next pandemic can be managed more efficiently and more effectively?
2: Right. Well, that's a big one. I mean, the big question. I mean, I suppose the um, starting at the basics and this had started after some of the previous outbreaks, but there's going to have to be a lot of um, thinking around um, how this all started, the, the viruses, where they come from, how we can get better at surveillance, picking them up as they jump from animals to humans. This is, it's happened in the past, it's gonna happen again. It, it's not just about the public health response, it's also about the economic response, and it, which is gonna be absolutely vast. And I think a lot of people are gonna be scratching their head and learning about well, how can we do this better and not have such a, such an impact on our economy, on our society? How can we do it in, in a less disruptive way?
0: Uh, how about you, Anne? What do you think for uh, lessons we wanna learn for the future here?
1: I think we've learned a lot about the barriers to really just getting services out to people, and that's been reflected in loosening of regulations and policies that prevent access to care. Um, We've Mm -hmm. seen um, uh, changes in um, restrictions around telehealth services, for example, um, data exchange, being able to share information, um, those types of rules that prevent Things like collaboration and um, multi-sector involvement, I think, um, has been has been successful. I think, in general, um, the work that APP does to strengthen health systems is really going to strengthen the foundation of our healthcare system overall. So, whether it's our work with the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services on quality payment for quality, different payment models for bundling services, and things like that, I think. Those are things that kind of strengthen your healthcare system so that when these types of um, epidemics come along, the healthcare system
2: is um,
1: able to be more responsive.
2: One of the lessons that we see in COVID, but this is the same for virtually all infectious diseases, in fact, many diseases, is that often there is groups, certain groups who are more vulnerable or at higher risk of getting a serious disease or even a lethal disease. Um, and we've certainly seen that with COVID-19. And uh, know, as you, everyone knows about how the elderly is, are really prone to getting a nasty illness and, and the death rates are much, much higher. Those that immunosuppress, the people that have um, a pre-existing cardiac and respiratory diseases, the overweight. Um, and I think we do need to um, quickly pick up on that. So what are some
0: things that we could be doing?
2: it can be so little things i mean in some countries you find simple things like just making sure things are translated into the group some groups are more marginalized in other countries and have multiple languages mm. making sure there's good communication to all groups um in the uk around for groups that were actually more at risk they had a special initiative where they identified all the um immunosuppressed and people that had sort of pre-existing diseases and, and they gave them a special package of services um Health services, but also in the in the community, so they didn't have to go out. They weren't exposed so much. And I think having those carefully designed initiatives to, to protect um, certain high risk groups, I think, is you know, no matter what the outbreak is, always going to be important.
0: Right, right. Uh, and anything to add to that about what we're thinking about as we're looking at, at the population, the at risk populations here in the U.S.
1: Well, I think that it's aligned with APP's mission. Is you know to, to to serve people who are disenfranchised by our healthcare system. I think um, I mean there's there's data now that's showing that African Americans account for over half right. of the positive cases in Chicago. Right. Um, and and so if you look at the South in particular, that's where you see the biggest health disparities as far as what what would be considered at risk for because of an underlying condition. Um, and so you couple you couple that sort of risk status already with the lack of jobs that are more work-from-home, the so more blue-collar jobs that you have to show up for, so you can't practice physical distancing as easily, and the unemployment and poverty and all of that with the state policies that aren't requiring people to um, shelter in place. Um, so you've got – it's almost like a perfect storm of – of what, how both policies and structural racism and other factors come into play to really create a, a what will probably be a high level of mortality in those areas. Um, and I think, you know, at projects across the country, whether it's related to um, uh, evaluating projects that are designed to prevent recidivism in the justice system or looking at the factors associated with um, why Cities like L.A. have such a major housing problem. All of all of those projects, I think, will help um, lead to maybe mitigating some of those issues. But I think what this country has seen so far in mortality, um, I think it's only the beginning when you think about in those other states where um, you've got all of those kind of factors coming into full force.
0: Yeah, uh, I'm nodding soberly. So, it, I mean, it sounds like, I, you're pointing out it's a really a holistic issue. In this case, health system strengthening goes back to the, the whole social structure strengthening, right, in terms of workforce and housing. And so, well, it's a good thing we work on those things. To sum up, we're talking about we, we need to uh, monitor data, continue to strengthen health systems, and there's some research to be done. That sounds like the trifecta of intersects which is why this podcast (laughs) is called The Intersect. Thank you both for joining me. Thank you. Thank you. And thank you for joining us at The Intersect.